Let me ask you something. What if there was someone out there who kept a log of every single thing you did every minute of the day? That would probably creep you out. Well, that's exactly what happens every time you go online. Your internet provider stores logs of every website you've ever visited and can legally sell this data to anyone. Worse yet, the government can obtain your data via bulk FISA order, even if you're not personally suspected of any crime. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. Visit expressvpn.com slash mullen right now and find out how you can get three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash mullen. Protect your data and get three months for free today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen talks freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, we have our old friend Kevin Goodsman back, not only our go-to constitutional scholar, but also a best-selling author of Thomas Jefferson, Revolutionary, James Madison, and the Making of America. And today, he's here to talk about his new book, The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. So, Kevin, welcome back. Glad to be here, Tom. It's an interesting concept for a book. What what made you focus on these three presidents? Well, we've had two instances in American history of three consecutive two-term presidents. One was Clinton, W., and Obama, who were kind of a slightly right-of-center, southern moderate Democrat, a neocon Republican and a left-wing Democrat who had no relationship and not much in common. The other time was Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, any two of whom would have been the two best friends who've ever been president. Jefferson and Madison were literally each other's best friends in the world. Monroe was at one point both Secretary of War and Secretary of State under Madison, and he had been Jefferson's law student. So I thought, well, this is an interesting subject. And when I began researching it, what I found was that the three of them thought that it was one continuous administration. So I tell my undergraduate students that there are three or four presidential inaugural addresses that are worth reading. One's Jefferson's first. And in his first inaugural address, he essentially course, he didn't know he was doing this, but he essentially laid out the program. Three of them would follow with their congressional allies who controlled the Congress for the entire 24 years of their six terms. And there has never been a book on this subject, which is really odd because Jefferson is a favorite of the public and of academics. And there's been a real recrudescence of interest in Madison since late 80s, not a single book on the three of them as presidents. So here we go. And as you write in the book, Jefferson considered after the fact his election in 1800, he referred to it as the revolution of 1800. 
Can you talk a little bit about what what was the dissatisfaction? Why did they think a revolution was necessary after three terms of Federalist? Well, they thought the Federalists had been about the business of implementing Alexander Hamilton's vision for assimilating the United States to the British model. And that meant primarily in economic terms, trying to make the United States more like Britain, but also in terms of constitutionalism, trying to make the United States like Britain. And Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe had a completely different understanding of what the revolution had been about, what the Constitution meant, what kind of economy was preferable, and just about any other major question that separated them from Hamilton and by implication from the administrations of Washington and Adams. So they thought this was a very significant change. Of course, in his first inaugural address, Jefferson said famously, we've called by different names, brethren of the same principle. We're all Republicans. We're all Federalists. He thought that Hamilton had been about the business of implementing a program that really wasn't popular, but that George Washington's enormous prestige and the great trust people had in him had made it possible for Congress during those years to instantiate kind of a Hamiltonian program in the law. And they quickly got about undoing that and heading off in a different direction. You know, it's not the focus of the book, but there was a line early on. I actually wrote it down because I liked it so much. And it's so it sounds so much like you now that I've read so many of your books. And it goes, um, it was Washington who decided without prompting from the Constitution that there ought to be a presidential speech in conjunction with the prescribed oath. And it not only is it a, a nicely written little turn of phrase, but it's it's I think most people don't understand that the Constitution is very short and it's very it doesn't give a lot of details. And Washington kind of had a blank slate. And even though this is kind of a minor point, I always kind of picture him as the guy that would make a management decision when his brilliant but sometimes pedantic subordinates might get into a four-hour argument, Washington says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take the oath. I'm going to make a speech, and we're going to all go home. So I just that, that just struck me about the book. And that's a subject. How much do you see Washington as having moderated what could have been more departures from the original vision by the Federalists, or did he—, he just simply kind of go along because that was his party? Well, it's kind of interesting. He wrote a letter to Edmund Pendleton, who was a senior judge in Virginia at the time and who had been the head of Virginia's civil government at the beginning of the revolution, in which he said that he, Washington, had on several occasions signed into law bills with which he didn't agree. So this recalls the fact that About 35 years ago now, I guess, a book was written by a prominent scholar in which he showed that before Andrew Jackson, presidents had a different understanding of the veto power. They didn't think of it as a way that they could cajole or coerce Congress into enacting their programs. Instead, they thought of it as a mechanism solely for protecting the Constitution. If Congress passed an ill-advised law that was consistent with the Constitution, then 
Washington thought he should sign it into law. He should defer to Congress's judgment in that connection. And so it's not at all clear exactly how much of Hamilton's program Washington personally approved of and how much of it he just thought Congress had a right to pass and he didn't have authority to veto. That's interesting. And I guess it goes more to that kind of Republican spirit that Jefferson would advocate rather than, you know, the way he's sometimes criticized even by Jefferson, but being a king in all but name. If the Federalists had that program, then is it possible for you to just bullet point the Republican program that Jefferson thought he was bringing in and and would be, you know, continued by Madison and Monroe? Well, in his first inaugural address, Jefferson said that he didn't think that the government should take from labor the bread that it had earned. He thought that the militia should be the country's first resort in terms of military defense. He thought that the state government should be protected in all their rights. Of course, by implication, he was saying that these things haven't been happening and they're going to begin to happen now. So essentially, Jefferson envisioned a far more decentralized government with an insubstantial military establishment in order to ensure that people in the United States paid low taxes and they would be able to make most of the decisions about what went on in their government or what went on in their private lives locally instead of having you know, a national bank in Philadelphia guiding the economy at the urging of the treasury secretary who might be in some distant capital too. This was Jefferson thought of fulfillment of the revolution. This was the way he had described the government as it ought to be before and during the revolution. And here at last, it seemed that the day had dawned when Americans had finally seen sense. You know, he he famously said in his first inaugural address, we have called by different names, brethren of the same principle, we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists, by which he meant he thought every good American was a Jeffersonian. And there had just been a kind of fever that had swept people into adopting this un-American program, as he saw it. And now things were going to be different. So the tale that I tell in the book is how this worked out. The, the Republicans did adopt most all of their at least legislative program, and some of it was highly successful, and some of it was a big disaster. Um, you talk about how Jefferson and Madison were fast friends even before they were both in opposition to the Federalists. Right. Madison goes to the convention and he sounds a lot like Hamilton. And of course, he and Hamilton and John Jay write the Federalist Papers. But at what point does he change his opinion or does he does he never really change his opinion? Is he always thinking that the best government would be one like he and Hamilton wanted, but just that they didn't get that in the Constitution. Well, I agree with you, and I tried to explain in my book about Madison that Madison in the Philadelphia Convention was a nationalist. He did want a centralized government. He wanted the federal government to have more power than it got. But I also think that 
a distinction between him and Hamilton was that after the Philadelphia Convention refused to do the things that some of the things that the Virginians at Madison's behest had proposed, Madison, through the rest of his career, read the Constitution the way that it had been explained by moderate Federalists in Virginia. So he did not pull a kind of bait and switch. I think one way to understand Hamilton is that he went back on at least the corporate uh, promise that the Federalists had made, if not his own personal statements about the way the Constitution would work. And Madison tried not to do that. Now, you could say, well, maybe Madison tried not to do that because he was more ethical than Hamilton in this sense, or maybe Madison tried not to do that because he knew that it would kill his political career in Virginia. Both can be true, I suppose. But he often do things after the Constitution had been ratified that were not consistent with what he had wanted the Constitution to empower the Congress to do. And one example I give in the book is pulled from the campaign biography of John C. Calhoun that was published in 1843. We now know that Calhoun was one of the two authors of this of the introductory part of this collection of speeches and such. And Calhoun tells the story in his campaign autobiography of the last, on the last day of Madison's presidency, going to see Madison. He had heard a rumor that Madison was going to veto the bonus bill. And this was a bill that provided for taking the profits that the federal government would get as a shareholder in the Bank of the United States, the second bank of the United States, and spending this money on the construction of roads, canals, and bridges throughout the country, Madison thought this was unconstitutional, that is, the spending program, and so he vetoed it. And Calhoun tells of sitting in an anteroom, waiting to talk to him and telling him, you know, if, if your friends had realized this was your opinion, they wouldn't have given you the duty of doing this on your last day in office. Uh, on the other hand, Henry Clay also went and visited Madison that day, and he had a different uh, kind of political ethics. And so what he said to Madison was, I understand that you don't approve of this bill, so why don't you leave it to your successor to decide what to do about it? And Madison didn't do that. And he instead wrote the famous bank bill veto message, which is kind of a valedictory address about the way the Constitution ought to be read. And he's right back to the position he's taken since the 1790s, making clear that he thinks Congress has enumerated powers. They don't include power to build roads, canals, and bridges throughout the country. And so he's vetoing the bill. Let's take a short break for this important message. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low-quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about Mini Coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. 
Right now, you can try out Mini Coders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Coders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Coders and start your free trial today. And now let's get back to the show. If I remember correctly, this is a bill that he had some hand in actually, if he didn't write it, he had some hand in in proposing it, correct? Well, he he had had the idea that there should be a there should be some federal road building. That is that some of the money that the federal government had could go into roads. But he didn't think that Congress had constitutional authority to build roads in states necessarily. He thought that Federal territory belonged to the federal government, and the federal government, as the government of the territory, could make expenditures that were that would be incumbent on a state government if there were a state government in that territory. This is not the same as the the bonus bill that Calhoun and Clay had had guided through Congress. That provided just for building roads, canals, and bridges all over the place. Besides continuing to do that indefinitely, I suppose. So that's where Madison thought that the Congress had gone too far and it was unconstitutional. And one of the things you talk about as far as the Jefferson administration, and this continues into Madison, was I think what people would today consider pretty radical in terms of military spending yeah. I've always heard about Obama had gutted the military, even uh, though the spending went up every year. Can right. you talk a little bit about their military <laughs> spending and what the results were? Well, there had been a significant military buildup in, in the John Adams administration because there was this quasi-war with the French in the Caribbean. And so several mainline warships were bought and built and... Albert Gallatin, in particular, who was the chief numbers cruncher among the Republicans, thought, we're not going to be able to balance the budget if we go along this line, and we can't really compete with Britain, France, and Spain at at naval expenditure, so we shouldn't even try to do this. So uh, some of the warships that the Federalists had bought were put in dry dock when Jefferson became president, and Gallatin, actually, you often hear libertarians say that one good thing about Andrew Jackson is that he was the one who paid off the national debt. And for a moment in the Jackson administration, the federal government had no no debt. This is true, but actually they did it on exactly the day that was that it was planned to be done by Albert Gallatin when he was Treasury Secretary under Jefferson. So Jefferson accepted Gallatin's argument that it was far more important to pay off the national debt than it was to worry about these military things. Jefferson had, I think, an unrealistic attitude about military expenditure. He seems to have thought that in case of military necessity, an army, a navy could just be kind of 
wished into being when, of course, these things take significant time. So one result of this, of course, one result of Jefferson's attitude about these things, which I think Madison had urged on him, was that during the Madison administration, a foreign army was landed in Maryland, marched across Maryland, defeated an American force at Bladensburg, which is nowadays just off the Beltway, and marched into Washington, burned down the Capitol, burned down the White House, burned down the War Department, burned down the State Department, burned down the Treasury Department. The only saving grace was that the French minister watching all thought that the patent office shouldn't be destroyed. And so he went over and told the British commanding general on the spot in French, see that building? That's the patent office. That's for the good of all mankind, not just for Americans. (laughs) So the British did not destroy the patent office, but they wrecked everything else. And this was totally predictable. In fact, it was predicted. If the United States declared war on the British without any preparation, this kind of thing might well happen. So today, just for the record, you're saying that this was a, this was a a disaster, not a success. <laughs> I think this was more or less a disaster. Yeah. Today, if you if you go on a tour of the White House, you can ask to be shown smoke stains from 1814 when the British burned the building. They have not been all painted over, I suppose, so that people can still see them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, what were the major successes of the uh, Jeffersonian presidents in, in broad strokes? What What did they achieve? Well, the main thing is gigantic territorial expansion. So there's a famous Louisiana Purchase. There's John Quincy Adams and uh, James Monroe's Transcontinental Treaty, which made the United States a a two-ocean power. There is, again, this elimination of the debt. There's consolidation of the country. Madison, I mean, Monroe had the idea that he would put into practice the idea that Americans were all Republicans and all Federalists, that there shouldn't be political parties. He actually had thought there shouldn't be political parties for years, but when he became president, he he took steps to ensure that the political contestation would stop. One thing he did was to go on, he imitated George Washington's example. He went on three major tours of the country, eventually seeing all the, all the major regions of the country personally. Of course, in those days, people don't realize this, but if you didn't actually see the president, you didn't see the president. I, you know, anytime you turn on television, you're going to see Joe Biden. But in those days, there were no media of communication. So having Monroe show up in your little town in Ohio was something people wouldn't forget. And Monroe thought this was a good thing because it would remind people they had in common not only their Americanness, but this common government. It was responsible to them. The president was making this effort, which was enormous. It must have been a real drag to do all this traveling he did through areas with no roads and, you know, no heat. But anyway, he also did not choose anybody from Virginia to be in his cabinet. So there was not an obvious Virginian successor to him. He thought there shouldn't be just a string of Virginia presidents. And that was that was a successful strategy for ensuring that didn't happen. Other major successes, paying down the debt, significantly shrinking the military, establishing at the end of the War of 1812 that the Great Lakes would be essentially demilitarized so that ever since the War of 1812, the boundary between the U.S. and Canada has been the longest 
undefended border in the world and ever. It still is. So those are the main things. There were other things too, but those are the main things. There, what surprised me was how, and this Galatin is, is quite a character, and I'll leave that to people to read the book and his involvement even before the administrations with the Whiskey Rebellion and everything, and, and also his background. I can't remember what you call him, the Dukes don't emigrate, or he's the exception to the rule, I think. Yeah, he is. There is a, there is a famous saying among historians, Dukes don't emigrate, and Gallatin was a nobleman on both sides of his family. His 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 background was Genovese, and his family had lived there since the founding of Geneva. They were, for that, Italian nobles named Galati. And then his mother's maiden name was Durozzi, so she was a French noble. And Gallatin just decided when he was a teenager, you know, Geneva's boring. I'm going to go to America. He didn't even know English. <laughs> so he just came to America and he ended up being treasury secretary for over 11 years. He's still the longest serving major cabinet officer in American history. And he founded New York University, which is one of America's top five universities, besides which he was very much interested in Indian languages. That's another kind of sub theme of the book is these people are all concerned with the question, how do we fold American Indians into American society? That's what they wanted to do. So Gallatin was very much interested in the languages of the Indians. And so was Jefferson, actually. He famously, when he sent Lewis and Clark West, he told them whenever they encountered new Indians, they should take a list of words he had given them and, and ask the Indians what their words for those things were. So you can imagine Lewis kind of pantomiming girl and son and so on and getting the local Indians to tell him how they said these things. Jefferson had the idea that while he was president, he would write a book about this. And you might think, well, that's crazy. A president's too busy for that. But of course, we've had presidents, famously Theodore Roosevelt wrote numerous books while he was president. He wasn't the only one. So Jefferson thought he would do this, but he didn't get it done. And then when he was moving back from Washington to Monticello, somebody broke into the kit, the chest that had his manuscripts of all these lexicons and finding that that was just a bunch of paper, he threw them in the river. They're in the James. So various Indian languages were lost because this robber thought, well, this paper is worthless. Kind of a sad story. Yeah. But anyway, there, 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 so there is detail in the book about what these people think about Indian policy and how they want to shape it and how they would want to educate local Indians and so on. It's very interesting. And I brought up the Latin because I was surprised at how overt the economic focus was mm -hmm. uh, of the, of the Jeffersonians, because I think, I think we tend to think of economic policy as something that comes later. I mean, obviously Hamilton had his, is it overstating it to say that they were early free market proponents, or how would you describe their economic policy? Well, of course, in 1776, Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations. And it's clear that both Jefferson and Madison were familiar with Adam Smith's arguments. There's actually a letter, and I don't remember whether I mentioned it in the book, but there's a letter in which Madison, having received some kind of communication about economic policy from Henry Clay, who by that point was pushing his quote-unquote American system, wrote back and said, I believe 
some people have lost track of the extent to which people should be free to make their own economic decisions, right? So he didn't say, you, Clay, need to stop doing this. But he was basically saying free trade is better than, than mercantilism, which is kind of the, the path that Clay, like Hamilton before him, was on and was very unpopular in Virginia and the rest of the South. So, yeah, this obvious, well... Predictably, this was important to people. One major appeal of the Jeffersonians in the 1790s was that the Federalist military buildup meant significantly more taxation than if you didn't have the felt. If you didn't have a war with France in the Caribbean, you wouldn't have to pay for warships and so on. So that was certainly an important dividing line between the parties. Another interesting thing in the book is the origin of congressional salaries. And that was the idea of a young congressman named John C. Calhoun. He was a member of the House of Representatives at the time. And he was essentially the number two guy in the House after Clay, who was a speaker. And the way he explained the idea that there needed to be congressional salaries was he said, now, this was not a problem for him. He was a wealthy man. But he said, having been in Congress for these few terms, I've noticed that people with ability come here, but they only stay for four or six years, and then they leave. And he said, so what we end up with is only a few people are familiar enough with all of what the government is doing actually to perform oversight. I think another problem is even if people have enough money to stay here, they can't bring their families with them because that's additional expense. So he said, I think we need to have congressional salaries. And the, so Congress went ahead and passed them, and then nearly 90% of the incumbents who ran for re-election that time lost. One of the ones who even, even Henry Clay had a challenge, which I think was the only time in his career he had a challenge. And the people back home in South Carolina ran two former congressmen against Calhoun for Congress. But he gave a, a speech in his hometown in which he laid out this argument I just described his having made in the Congress, and people decided, yeah, he was right about that. So ever since then, we've had congressional salaries. So you know, the uh, old the old alternative, of course, was that you would get a, a per diem kind of allowance to pay for your lodging. Yeah, it's, it's funny when the way you describe Washington, what we now know as Washington, D.C., back then, and how kind of dire it was to live there and you know, people had to stay with each other and walk through a yeah. swamp to get through from the yeah. White House to the Capitol. Literally a swamp. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the people who had carriages were definitely more comfortable than people who didn't. There's a story about John Quincy Adams recording in his journal that he was walking more than a mile from his lodging near the White House to the Capitol one day when he was a senator. And the vice president, Aaron Burr, stopped and offered him a ride in his carriage. And, of course, Adams said, well, certainly, I'll be happy to take a ride. So it was a problem. It, it, you, if you went to Washington, there was nothing glamorous about it. There was nothing there but the government at the time. It, was, it, it had been essentially a cow pasture before they decided to make it the capital's site. I guess, I mean, there's a million roads to go down, but let's go down one more, which is since you brought up John Quincy <clears throat> Adams. He's the president who succeeds Monroe right. in, in a contested election that uh, was disputed by that election denier, 
Andrew Jackson. <laughs> right. To, to use this today's is the founding terms. of the Democratic Party. They're, they were originally the, the election deniers. Yes. So what, in, insofar as Adams was, you know, a, a departure from the Jeffersonian platform, what, what brought that to an end? What brought the political, or I should say, why, why were Americans looking for a change by the end of the Monroe administration? I don't know that it's clear they were really. Politics were far more geographical than they are now. So he had support essentially in New England and New York. And all the candidates in that 1824 race counted on support from their home states and neighboring states. And Quincy Adams, of course, had been with Calhoun, one of the two eminences of James Monroe's cabinet. I say in the book, both of them were brilliant. Both of them did things that in the cabinet that we still live with now that were very significant. Calhoun essentially created the the Defense Department. I mean, there was a quote-unquote war department. It, it was the secretary and a few clerks, but Calhoun had the idea that we need to have, as they did in most European countries, we need to have a staff. We need to have preparation. We need to have a, an ongoing effort to have a military. You can't just have a few clerks and no army. And anyway, but the myth that the Democratic Party was born in was that Andrew Jackson had received more popular votes and more electoral votes than Quincy Adams in 1824. But ne- nobody having received a majority of electoral votes, the contest was put in the House of Representatives, where the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, steered a couple of states behind Adams. And then a couple of days after Adams had won the election, Adams announced that he would make Henry Clay Secretary of State. And so the Democrats said this was a corrupt bargain and they organized in order to eject the two of them from the White House. We now know that actually it's not true that he had more popular votes and more electoral votes. The only way you could come to that conclusion would be if you ignored the fact that New York did not have a popular election the state legislature decided that Quincy Adams would get New York's electoral votes. And if you took the votes that the members of the state legislature in New York had received at the last election and added them into the column of respectively Jackson or Adams, you had actually more popular votes for Quincy Adams than there were for Jackson. So this this longstanding myth was originally the basis of anger over the outcome and really one of the instigating factors in the creation of the Democratic Party. And the fact that it's a Democratic Party lore, I think, helps explain why it's only in the last couple of years that it's finally been punctured. Because a lot of what happens in American political, in writing books about American political history is people just repeat the bygone propaganda of the Democratic Party. So um, after the Adams one term, Jackson does get in and they and the Democrats do have a long run. Then mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the party is still around today, but it's much different than it was back then. How much of the Jefferson, Madison, Monroe stamp was still on the party, starting with Jackson, and how much had kind of faded away or was was different? Well, I don't I don't think of them as the same party. It's common for people to say that the Jeffersonian Republicans were the precursors of the Democrats. But as I said before, I think that 
Monroe, the last of these guys, had in mind that there shouldn't be political parties. And so he was careful to see to it that party organization not be maintained in the same way as would have been necessary for the the party to win the election that John Quincy Adams won. So how much of the Democrats is Republican? That's an interesting question. People like Thomas Jefferson didn't think it was a good idea to have Andrew Jackson be the president. Actually, Jefferson thought that Jackson was a threat to the Republic. And the reason for this was he was a conquering general. He'd been insubordinate during the Monroe administration. Secretary of War Calhoun had ordered him not to invade Florida. And actually, in those days, Florida was two colonies of Spain. And he had ordered him not to invade and take one of the capitals of those two colonies. And so Jackson did just... And so Calhoun's answer in the cabinet was, we need to fire this guy. We can't have insubordinate can't have insubordinate generals starting wars with European great powers over the orders of their civilian civilian superiors. And the way John Quincy Adams explains this cabinet discussion in his diary is that when the when as they were going in reverse order of seniority, when it finally came to him at Adams, the Secretary of State, to speak in this meeting, he said, Well, it's true, we don't want to have insubordinate generals starting wars with great European powers. On the other hand, we've already done, he's already done this. So what I should, what I think I should do is I should write a letter to the King of Spain pointing out how easy it was and asking him how much money he would like for Florida. And that's essentially what ended up happening. So the King of Spain, when he got this communication, contacted several other monarchs in Europe, the British, the French, a couple of others, and said, hey, are you going to let these Americans do this? And they, none of them answered him. So he decided, well, I guess I got to sell. That's how Florida became part of the United States. So Adams Adams was a real politique type. He was Kissingerian, I think, often. It's a little bit odd that he ended up being at the head of Monroe's cabinet, as he had, of course, been, not only was he the son of the last Federalist president, but he had been a Federalist senator himself before he left the Federalist Party over Federalist attitude toward the War of 1812 in New England. Well, the one thing I I recall uh, that I've written about myself is that all the way to Woodrow Wilson, Wilson feels the need to campaign on the idea that the government has to do have a different focus. And he he cites Jefferson saying, we used to say in Jefferson's time that Nobody should be interfered with unless he harms somebody else. And I think he's going back to that first inaugural you mentioned where Jefferson says just that. So uh, to the extent that, you know, in order to have the progressive era, Wilson felt like uh, we got to change our thinking here. We're still thinking Jefferson. So I think these guys had quite a stamp on the rest of the century. However, they may have departed uh, later from a lot of those ideals, the, the general idea of what the government's here for seems, still seems to be around by 1912. So, Well, and of course, it has been part of Democratic Party propaganda that the Democratic Party is the Jeffersonian Republican Party and by another name. But as I said before, I don't buy that argument. It's, it's, it ignores the fact that essentially Monroe allowed the party to to wither and then Quincy Adams didn't, you know, he was not a a Jeffersonian candidate per se. And 
the party really ceased to exist. The Democratic Party was organized beginning in 1824 to, to get Adams and Clay out of the White House. I buy the argument of my old UVA history professor, Michael Holt, that, that today's Democratic Party has its origin in a letter that was written by Martin Van Buren to the, to the editor of the Richmond Inquirer, who's a guy named Thomas Ritchie. And he said, Calhoun told me I need to get in touch with you. And so it seems to me that it's just a different party, that old, the old party ceased to exist as Monroe planned. And again, I think Monroe was acting on Jefferson's program. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people, I think, that have kind of a passing familiarity with these people would think of Madis, Jefferson and Madison as kind of Lennon and McCartney. And, you know, right. Monroe is like not even Ringo. Maybe he's Mal Evans, the guy who drives <laughs> the bus, but not at all. I mean, there's quite a bit in the uh, Monroe administrations. There's quite a bit more in the book. Why don't we leave it there, Kevin? I appreciate you spending all this time and I'm going to... Well, just one stop. point. I think I think the... Readers of the book will probably come away with the conclusion I arrived at, which is that the Monroe administration was the most successful of the three. Yeah. Yeah. That that's yeah. So very interesting. And we'll link to the book on the show notes page. Again, for people listening, it's called The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Kevin, thanks for spending the time. You're welcome. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here, including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to ItsTheFedStupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's The Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.